Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and I'm joined by security practitioners, Chris Killian and Forrest. This week's icebreaker question was inspired by the Hawaii officer who got fired for sending a false missile alert. And my immediate reaction was, oh, this poor soul got blamed for everything. And it reminds me of false positives. Whenever we get an alert that something might be wrong and we have so much technology beeping at us, taking us away from the present moment and it sounds like they were just getting prepared for the worst and these things happen. How do you manage being overly notified and sort of working out the kinks when it comes to preparing in security? Hi, this is Killian. Two things that I thought of when I read this article was first, This sounds like the Equifax defense. Like we swear it was this one guy and he totally just messed up and it's nobody's fault. But I think there's a major process problem if that one guy can send out this alert to everybody like that. So I I don't buy it and I, I feel bad for the guy, but it sounds like there's a process problem. Again, everybody notified and have proper policies and procedures and everything else in place to operate this as a test. You know, relying on some manager to tell them like, hey, this is going to be a test. When then they played the full message saying this is not a test, there's an you know, alert coming. There's a breakdown in the process. And to tie that back in with the kind of other alerts and things like that, I've spent a ton of time recently uh, working on GDPR related material. One of the biggest things I took away is you have to have a process and you have to follow the process. You know, when you get an alert, you have to know what to do with it. You need to be able to quickly make a determination if this is something you need to worry about and take further steps or if this is something I can set down um, that it's not priority. Part of that, though, is kind of filtering that and making a determination or a list or even having a playbook that says, here's what is considered high priority. Here's what we need to deal with. And everything that's low priority or notifications, you need to get rid of it because then the noise floor raises. And if everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. Yeah, this is Chris. I'm going to 100% agree with that. If everything's a priority, then, then nothing is. It's hard to kind of sif- separate the the things that actually require your attention from the things that don't. I, f- I find this to be the case in a lot of different areas of my life, not just security, obviously. You know, a lot of us get notifications on our smartphones. I found myself tuning things out if I see the same thing over and over again, and it doesn't really have any consequence to me. So obviously, taking that into mind and kind of applying it to security... We need to be made aware of the important stuff in a way that doesn't sort of numb us to all the little things. It's sort of like a cry wolf story. You know, your 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 phone vibrates or your email goes off. You know, this looks important and it's not. You get that a hundred times, you're eventually just going to stop caring or stop paying attention to it. And this is Forrest over here. I'm actually going to, I'm going to wildly disagree and say, I think we're way under notified. I'm looking for white noise. I'm looking for just a nonstop barrage of push notifications, email alerts, everything I can get, I want. No, but actually, I'm kidding. It's absolutely true. We're wildly overnotified, and I usually do it on a weekly basis of, you know, what am I potentially receiving automatically that's I don't need to be receiving anymore that's becoming white noise. You know, I think having a process in place for eliminating that is, I don't know if the right word is force multiplier, but it, it can really turn alerting into something that's a lot more useful. Is this why you don't answer my emails anymore? Well, you know, like I say, I trim out white noise as I'm able to. No, I'm just kidding. Thanks, guys. And for our regular listeners, if you enjoy your show, if you can rate and review our podcast on iTunes, we'll send you a deck of our InfoSec cards that's based on the Cards Against Humanity card game. To learn more, please visit veronis.com slash review. 
So after the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency dealt with the false alarm, people were also criticizing their staff that they're putting passwords on a post-it. And Twitter went on about how incompetent they are. But some people in their defense said it's actually generally okay. What are your thoughts about where you store your passwords? And does it matter if you put it on a post-it? All right. I was just going to say that, uh, you know, I mean, I prefer, you know, a password manager with two two-factor authentication. But even that, I mean, typically as a backup, you know, you're getting sort of backup codes and trying to keep them in a physical location. I'm not saying I would ever have that on a post-it hanging off my screen, but I mean, there is a value to having like a physical copy of something somewhere to give you access. I mean, I, I would hope that stays pretty secure, but just like we, I think we kind of talked about it recently, but you know, there is a time and a place, I guess, for some kind of physical copy. It's a pretty limited case, but it can be useful. In general, it is bad practice to have your passwords on a post-it note hanging from the machine you use those passwords on. It does depend on what the password's for, how sensitive it is. Obviously, you have to kind of gauge that on your own. I do think that the the uproar about this was not just that it was sitting there hanging on his, his desktop monitor. It's that they then allowed the press to come in and take photos with that and then basically broadcast it to the entire world because now everyone has a photo of that post-it note which has that password on it. Obviously, that's far, far worse from being in your own private home, having it hanging from your monitor where you don't have the press in there. But clearly, it's still not great practice. I mean, what I usually do is I have a password manager. I keep everything in there. I make my passwords as secure as I can. I think it's about as, about as far as I usually go, but I definitely wouldn't leave it on a post-it note. I think with so many things that the context is key here. Think about this. So obviously, as Chris mentioned and as Forrest mentioned, in a public space where you have other people interacting, keeping your password in plain sight is, is not a great idea. However, in the defense of keeping a physical copy of it, I'm reminded of an article I read uh, quite a long time ago, and it had to deal with what happened to business continuity after the World Trade Center attack. One of the businesses realized that obviously they had, everybody had suffered a, a tremendous loss at that point. But when they were going to get the business up and running again, trying to reestablish themselves, they realized that they didn't have access to a lot of the data and accounts because of what happened. Then they had to kind of go through and try and figure out how they could get all of the systems back working without that information. So there is a lot to be said about having emergency backup for passwords and things like that. Just again, for business continuity reasons, in case something happens, if I mean, and again, not even just a tragedy. Let's say the power grid goes down at your main location. Cell phone towers are down. You can't call somebody up to ask for the password for the system because maybe they, they can't answer the phone. Just again, a very easy example. And also think about this too. As we have more passwords on more different systems, keeping it on a post-it note in a secure location is certainly better than using a password uh, 10 different times so you only have to reuse or you only have to remember one of them. So, you know, it's, it's always a trade-off. So besides where we put our passwords, another kind of location that's been a huge security and privacy concern is our fitness wearables. So for those who have been following the privacy risks of fitness wearables for a few years now, this is nothing new. The more information we have about somebody's performance, the better their recommendations and how you can improve your performance. So it's not so great, though, however, when a wearable is showing up a heat map of exactly where your country secret military base at and who's exactly on the base. And what's surprising is that the military requires so much training on security, but they're somehow not getting training on their wearables and what they're revealing or not revealing in their settings. And when information is power, preventing your adversaries from knowing where you're at is almost everything. 
pretty fascinating. I mean, the idea that they didn't have the foresight to realize that, you know, while we have this wonderful technology to help us improve our physical performance and become better soldiers and all, we're giving away our location to the enemy. And it's it's kind of why they didn't think that through. I, I'm surprised that there isn't like a market for military specific fitness tr- tracking or military specific wearables that don't send that to the same, at least to the same server or lump it in with the same data set as everyone else in the world. Some of this stuff probably should be kept a little bit more secret, a little more private than it is. It's it's a trade-off. You know, they're they're using this information to make their 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 forces more more combat ready, I guess is the way to put it, but at the cost of potentially just giving away their location. I think that's a, a bit of a an oversight to say the least. I think the thing that stands out to me at least is that I don't think none of the use of this, or at least not a lot of it, was any kind of like officially pushed. You know, I mean my understanding was there might have been some like low-level officers who were pushing for it for people under them for just stats, but by and large, I mean this wasn't necessarily like given out, I don't think. I mean this was I think people just for their own workouts and stuff trying to use it for themselves. And I think that some of the services I know did have kind of policies in place. Maybe they all did and some were just inadequate or people weren't, you know, keeping up with them. But I mean there were people who had a policy and put it in place, but there wasn't maybe like that kind of information security education. I mean, I know I run into that, you know, we talk about just kind of regular non-technical users in a corporate environment who aren't necessarily aware of the implications of not meeting the security policy that's set from above. You know, I do think a lot of it is an education issue. I mean, this is sort of a, an interesting kind of permutation of it, but I think it's it's largely the same thing. You can have a policy in place and talk about it, but if people on the ground, you know, the people, whether in the military or in a corporate environment, are if they're actually following that policy or not, I mean, that's where I think you, you potentially run into trouble. The way I look at this is sort of twofold as well, too. The first portion of it is a lot of our kind of policies and controls and things like that um, from, a, from a corporate institutional level, and in the military's case, is rooted in an old way of thinking, a physical way of thinking. If we keep somebody off of the base, for example, we keep somebody physically away, that will secure this information. Again, data doesn't have borders like that in many cases. And the other half of that is that we have this tendency or the Facebook model almost to make it insecure by default. We want to share with everybody all the time which is, again, the, the fundamental opposite of, of us as security people is, you know, we want to make it as secure as possible. Uh, the default is to not share that information. So this is another instance where pushing organizations to adopt kind of a, a privacy by design type of mentality, where if you're going to create the service, you need to bake into that security uh, or bake in security from the, the beginning and anticipate some of this. It can't be default open. I mean, maybe that's actually kind of the kind of run into this where there's sort of like a new frontier of security risks and vulnerabilities that people haven't really kind of figured out the way of dealing with them yet, just kind of collectively. And, you know, maybe individual organizations have a policy in place, but who knows if it's an accepted best practice. And I mean, maybe something like this will will push for opt-in to be the standard as opposed to opt-out. I think that might require some, you know, buy-in from policymakers, whether corporate or or whatnot. But until then, I, I can't imagine that, you know, we won't be finding out about a new app that does something similar in a year or two. Finally, it might be interesting to compare the last piece about revealing your location with your wearables versus the immigration services having access to our license plate number. So we're not a political podcast, so we don't have to talk about the politics of immigration, but I'm more interested in comparing why a license plate versus a social security number versus the actual location of a person's cell phone versus the location revealed by our wearable device. And it sort of goes back 
back to the initial icebreaker question is, when every number is unique and significant, does it dilute the significance of them all? The way that I look at this is it's using license plates in this way. It does serve two purposes, really. One, this is a pretty classic case of big data analytics. The more information you have, the more you can baseline and use it as a, as a key indicator for somebody. Even if you don't know the exact person, um, you have some type of indicator and a unique license plate where you can start to do behavior analysis in some ways um, on that information. And because license plates are generally public, um, you can walk down the street and you can see license plates. It sidesteps a lot of the maybe more tricky things things, uh, at least in U.S. law, about having to get a warrant, for example, to, to trace phones or to do something very specific and targeted to the person. So it's a way to do analytics without having to get into a, a you know legal gray area at that point. I think it's interesting because we definitely have some level of this tracking already in place on a, a smaller scale. Anybody who's ever uh, used like an easy pass before, they're already getting this information if you go through those toll booths. They know that you pass through. They know exactly what date and time. They know how long it took you to get from point A to point B. They use that more for making sure you're not speeding on the highway and making sure you're paying your dues. But this is not information that's suddenly being gathered out of nowhere. This is something that's been done for a while. Uh, I guess just the context is changing and the use of it is changing. We think about it's you know locations of a, of a public piece of information that is the license plate number, like you're saying. But I wonder, you know, when we talk about data collection by you know things like Facebook and kind of social media corporations, and maybe an individual piece of information about what someone's been up to isn't that interesting necessarily. But like you know, altogether, it's a lot more valuable and a lot more interesting and provides much more analytics, like you're saying, than just kind of the the sum of the the individual parts. And I just kind of, it's more of thinking ahead, but I really wonder what it'll turn into, what it would be capable of in, you know, a couple of years when there's maybe other location-based or individual person kind of profile type information that can be kind of built around baking in this kind of location and travel information. I'm not sure that's a good or bad thing, to tell you the truth, but I'm just kind of curious about what the future holds for that. So Mike is out sick this week instead of tool of the week. To wrap up, let's talk about how those involved in cybersecurity matters should be proactive rather than continuously playing catch up and responding to vulnerabilities only after they've been exploited. What are some things organizations and firms can do? to be more proactive. Sure, I mean, I'll jump in here. One of the big things that's making sure that you are aware of what you have that's end of life or, or at least no longer being patched, the number of vulnerabilities that are out there for old software and hardware are definitely gonna be, well, not definitely, but likely to be a lot higher because of the, the amount of time they've been out there, the number of possible exploits that exist, and the fact that you know things could be discovered since that went end of life. So if you have old stuff sitting out there that's not up to date, the chances of an attack, or at least the success of an attack, I think in my eyes are gonna be a little bit higher or significantly higher. I know, just kind of to follow up on, actually this kind of a good question for talk, talking about something I mentioned before, but setting aside some time periodically to eliminate white noise in terms of alerting. If you have continuous false positives that you know are not something to worry about, if you get rid of those, I mean, it increases, I think, the the sort of mental value of being alerted to real threats. So that's my little tip that I like to do to stay kind of proactive. The way that I look at it is if we could forecast all the vulnerabilities that are going to come and all the new technology that we're going to develop in the future, um, well, Heck, we'd all be you know, rich and retired at this point if we had that kind of insight. But I think it all comes down to fundamentals. 
I think in many, many cases, we overthink things. We get kind of wrapped up in what the next new hot thing or the next new scary thing might be. But we kind of overlook a lot of the fundamentals, as kind of Chris mentioned, good hygiene on what's on our network, knowing what's out there, um, knowing what we have, just keeping that basic inventory, implementing some kind of very, very basic proactive controls, um, eliminating, uh, for example, data that we don't actively use or we don't need to store at that point. Again, it reduces some risk. Segmenting the network up. So if you have a problem, it's uh, quarantined to one specific area, hopefully. Again, it's not going to prevent everything completely, but it'll at least um, limit the damage to one area. Just um, basic things like that. Um, eliminating extra accounts in Active Directory that nobody really uses or nobody's uh, sure what they're there for anymore. Again, that's just redu reducing surface area. And there are just, again, a lot of really good hygiene steps that we can take that, again, won't prevent bad things from happening, but it'll minimize the damage. We were in the kitchen earlier this week, and you mentioned ransomware. And I was surprised that people are still asking about how to prevent ransomware. What do they ask about ransomware? Set the stage for it. A lot of people that I talk to, it depends on how invested they are in cybersecurity in the first place. But a lot of times you find people who either are unfamiliar with the concept or unfamiliar with the idea that it can, you know, have a, an adverse effect on them in their environment. On the other side of things, I also run into people who say, hey, I had this happen three months back, six months back. I'm not entirely sure what exactly to do with it going forward. So a lot of times I find that I'm in a consultative role where I have to kind of explain here's what it is, here's why it happens, here's the simplest methodology for preparing your environment, making sure that if something does attack, you're reducing that surface area. Um, I mean, as, as we are talking about before, one of the things you like to recommend is that loose privilege model for permissions, making sure that people have exactly what they need at any given time and no more. If you can you know, minimize what an attack can actually touch, then you are able to mitigate the damage if, if and when something does happen. I mean, the hope is it doesn't, but I like to open this up to Killian and Forrest as well. I'm sure they have a lot to, to share about this. Chris, you know what sounds really suspicious? Your explanation seems like a detailed explanation of exactly what I just said. <laughs> Interesting. Good, good hygiene. Um, Got them. Have a plan. Know what to do with it. You know, again, you're not going to avoid it. There's always going to be something that we don't see coming. But again, if you if you practice good hygiene, you're going to reduce that uh, potential risk. Thanks to Killian Engler, Chris Kaiser, Forrest Temple, and all our listeners for joining us today. And let us know what you think about our podcast by going to iTunes. Thanks, and we'll meet up again next week. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Have a great one. Bye, everyone.